Economy Committee and um, some members will be attending this morning's meeting via Starleaf and our, we don't have any witnesses today so None. no one will today be attending via Starleaf and the meeting will be broadcast live when open to the public and a recording will be made available on the committee's web pages on the Assembly website and just to remind members to mute their devices when they're not speaking. Um, obviously this is one of our short meetings today so we have to be out of this room by 12. And I'd just like to welcome Mike Nesbitt to his first meeting of the committee and um, just put on record members thanks to John Stewart for his work on the committee and to wish him well in his new role as well. So moving on then to item number one which is apologies. We have apologies this morning from Sinead McLaughlin, Stuart Dixon and Mervyn's story, unless members are aware of any other apologies. Okay. So moving on then, I, I, we can't do minutes. Chair, what, what we can do is move on to the items where it's more discussion and there aren't decision-making um, elements early on. Um, and then hopefully we will get a fifth member so that we can make decisions. Okay, so we'll go to item number three, which is Chair's business, and just run through the few things that are in there. There is correspondence from the Speaker to all MLAs at page 14 regarding Assembly recess and recalls, setting out the rules around recalls and other matters, and asking that recalls are requested only in exceptional circumstances. So that's just for us to note. Then moving on, there's an invitation from the six FE colleges at page 17 to an online event, FE for Me, a celebration of further education in NI, which takes place today from 1 to 2. And again, that's just to note. Chair, we, we have Sinead from the team is going to sit in on that, hopefully, and we'll come back with um, the um, feedback from that. Thank you. And then there is correspondence from the Clerking and Member Support Office at page 18 regarding a training session taking place for members on protecting your social media reputation. There are three dates available, Friday the 11th, Thursday the 17th and Friday the 18th of June. And just to ask members to email the CAMS office if they wish to attend those sessions. And then the final thing under Chair's business today is at page four of your table papers. There is a copy of an oral statement from the Education Minister yesterday on the final report and action plan by the expert panel on educational underachievement. And just to highlight that the report entitled A Fair Start has identified eight key areas within which it has identified 47 actions for change. And the key areas are redirecting the focus to early years, championing emotional health and wellbeing, ensuring the relevance and appropriateness of curriculum and assessment, promoting a whole community approach to education, maximising boys' potential, driving forward teachers' professional learning, supporting the professional learning and wellbeing of school leadership, and ensuring interdepartmental collaboration and delivery. Um, and just to remind members, the committee has previously discussed the importance of a whole education continuum and that what goes on in school impacts what goes on in further and higher education, which are obviously within our committee's remit. So that's just to note at this point, and um, the committee will obviously want to consider any um, de Department of Education action plan that is brought forward at a later date. So moving on then to where, Peter? We can't do four, Chair, because we require agreement on that. So if we want to move then to five, the reform of youth training. Yep. Um, so at page 52 of your pack, there is a written briefing from, or sorry, written briefing on reform of youth training at page 52 of your pack. There is a clerk's memo at page 45 of table papers. 
And just to remind members that the committee was briefed at the last meeting on the department's review of level four and five provision and their linkage into level six. Um, this written briefing highlights the work that has been done at levels one to three. So, Peter, you're going to take us through this. Yeah, Chair, the, the committee will be aware of what's going on at levels four and five. We had a briefing from officials on that last week. So that's effectively everything that is equivalent to A-levels right through to foundation degrees, to NVQs, HNDs, HNCs and so on. What this looks at is levels one to three, which is basically the, the GCSE equivalent and up to A-level, and including uh, an equivalent to A-level. So what the, the department has done is it's taken its strategy generating our success from 2015 and has reviewed the separate elements one, two and three within that. Um, members will recall that the, the committee has engaged very heavily with the FE colleges. The feedback we've had from them and we've had from employers is that a lot of the qualifications aren't well understood. Employers don't really know what they do. Young people aren't aware of them. Um, the career service isn't having equal access to all students in all schools. So in many schools, uh, young people really are only aware of A-levels and a university progression. They have no um, awareness of other pathways. So part of the review was to try and make those clearer, simplify them, um, re reduce the, the kind of cluttered landscape of qualifications. Members will also recall that the, the FE colleges have commented on how they deal with over 80 um, awarding bodies in terms of vocational and professional qualifications, 81 of which, I think it's 87 altogether, 81 of which are based in England and don't necessarily uh, take cognizance of our local um, term time. So we have five weeks less um, to complete to the, to the end of the, to the summer um, than schools in, or colleges in England and Wales. Uh, Scotland has a very different system, it's very separate. So it's trying to look at how we reduce all of that complication and bring forward something that is much more relevant for young people and employers and they can much more clearly understand. So um, what they've wanted to do was try and introduce professional and technical qualifications as a, a standalone, clearly marked uh, equal pathway to doing A-levels and then going on to university, that sort of academic route. Um, so what they've done is they've focused a lot of effort, particularly at level two, and they're developing what's called a traineeship. Traineeship will come live in September, and what it'll effectively do is replace the level two of the old Training for Success um, programme, Training for Success contracts end in July and obviously won't be renewed. So this new um, system called traineeship will replace that level to training for success qualification. What the department has found is that there isn't great stickability, if I can use that word, with training for success. So you're only really seeing about 65% of young people actually making it to the end. They've piloted this new traineeship uh, model of level two and the stickability, I can use that word again, was 88% through to completion. And the, the award has been considered by employers and young people to be much more clearly employable. So employers understand what the elements are, they know what's going on, and they are more likely to employ someone with these, uh, this qualification. So the, the pilots have been incredibly positive, and now it's going to be rolled out from September. 
The big issue uh, and the, the issue that the committee may want to reflect on is that roughly 60 plus percent of the um, level two was already being done in colleges, but obviously there were alternative providers. The way that the business case for this traineeship has been designed and, and what the Department for Finance has approved for value for money is that the whole level two now takes place in FE colleges. Um, so there, there may be an issue there around what alternative providers are losing and whether they're able to pick up at other levels, which we can go into as well, and the committee can decide how it wants to take that forward. Initially, um, the opening of this in September um, will have... Um, th th there's going to be approximately just shy of 30 occupational areas um, for this to go into. Um, the core level, level two frameworks will also include um, GCSE uh, English and maths level. Um, so this effectively will give people a, a vocational route to A-level or other uh, qualifications at levels four and five. So the programme covers key elements. Uh, a vocational qualification equivalent to three GCSEs in the chosen occupational area. Education qualifications, uh, essential skills, literacy, numeracy, ITC, uh, with the option of pursuing GCSE qualifications in English and mathematics, work-based learning and additional professional qualifications. So they're, they're going to be coming out with something a lot more identifiable and a lot easier to understand that has the academic core, but also has a level of professional and technical qualification. There will be work-ready experience and so on. While the 16 to 24 age group is being specifically targeted, this will be open to all age groups who are not already in employment, so it replaces other elements of um, training for older age groups, and we, we'll get on to um, the all-age apprenticeship in a minute. So initially, uh, come September, there will be 1,850 places available in 22 occupational areas. September 2022, that will rise to 4,500 places in 38 occupational areas. So that effectively, if you like, will be full rollout of occupational areas with further capacity for increased places. Um, the, the, the traineeship programme feeds into the department's economic recovery action plan, but also its 10x economy vision. So it has been designed so that it gives employers uh, a number of issues that they've been asking for. So it prioritises skills that are most economically relevant. It offers breadth beyond skills of specific job roles. So while you study towards particular occupational areas, you also have that English, maths, ICT that people who are doing GCSE will have. Um, the advanced manufacturing and engineering, there'll be agri-tech, uh, there'll be life and health sciences, and there'll be financial services. So it aims at all of those occupational areas that the Minister's already highlighted are in short supply within our economy and where we have existing skills gaps. Members will recall from the skills micro-inquiry that the committee did that these were issues that were identified. Qualifications that employers didn't understand, qualifications that weren't work-ready or occupationally relevant and weren't in the, in the areas they needed to be. So this Level 2 traineeship seeks to address that. So... The rollout is from September. Um, Training for Success, which it replaces, hasn't had the best reputation. 
Um, so that scheme will end and this will basically take over. There will be a qualification um, level to get onto this course based on GCSEs that young people have already done in schools. So essentially they, they have to get four GCSEs at grade G, including English and Maths at grade F. So that hopefully would mean that a lot of young people who maybe GCSE hasn't really worked out for, because those wouldn't be the passing A to C grades that, that we talk about, will be able to get onto this and effectively it will provide them with that qualification that they need to go on to further study. Members will also recall that the committee has been briefed on how around a third of young people here leave school without any qualification. They don't have those five GCSEs A to C. Um, this is hopefully a way to address that gap, and we now have five members, so we could start making decisions. And uh, Chair, what I'll do is, if members are content, I'll continue on with level one and three. So level one is, um, if you like, core level that would be effectively seen as getting people into the way of qualifications of working in colleges so that they can then progress on to the level two GCSE equivalent. Um, so again, the department has been taking pilots and reviewing the, the original generating our success level one provision. And they have redesigned it. They, they aren't entirely there in terms of a full replacement for level one. So what they'll be rolling out as an interim in September is something they're calling skills for life and work, not to be confused with about three or four other brands that had a very similar title. This is skills for life and work, not skills for life, not skills for work, which are other programs, skills for life and work. So this will be um, awarded to private tender as well as four of the six FE colleges who will offer it and a service level agreement with them is already in process. Um, and as I say, the programme will launch in September. The business case for it um, looks at about 1,500 young people starting each year, and the qualifications will build up um, personal and employability still skills, and it's really that stepping stone, as I say, to level two to get onto the um, traineeship uh, programmes. Um, and also move into other areas of study at FE colleges and potentially get into an apprenticeship. So, if you like, it's the level even below the GCSE level that we've just talked about at level two. So, it too has key elements um, an individualised personal training plan for every participant, which hasn't necessarily been the case before. There's been a, a tendency for one size fits all. This will allow specific skills gaps to be identified for each participant. The delivery model is flexible and needs to be because of that individualization. So um, you know young people will get that specific training and skills base that is, is right for them. Um, there is also likely to be a proportion of the course offered online, which means that young people won't always be in college and they'll be able to work from other locations and so on. If they don't have great broadband, again, hopefully we'll be able to use the library estate for that. Uh, there will be learning programmes on personal social development, employability, professional and technical skills and the essential skills we talked about before, English, maths, ICT, leading to regulated qual uh, qualifications at entry level one, 
but potentially also shading into level two, depending on how well they've done. There'll be a personalised targeting of qualifications level. So again, a qualifications framework will be designed for each individual participant. And there'll be world of work activities and a work placement when the participant has reached a certain level, as well as a participant training alliance. And that's obviously the same for level two, which again is a key incentive uh, for young people to get onto this is the fact that they will be paid an alliance. We haven't had a, an amount yet, but that will come with, with further information and when we bring in officials to brief on a final product. Then turning to Apprenticeships NI, that Remembers Will Remember was effectively the, the redesign of modern apprenticeships would happen, which happened back in 2012. Uh, it seems much longer ago than that. Those are now being called Apprenticeships NI21, shortened to APPS NI21, which brings up all sorts of associations, but we'll, we'll, we'll not go there. Um, this will mirror existing provision, but also, again, as I said, with the, the level one and the level two, will be aligned to the ERAP and the 10X economy. Uh, members will also be aware that the 10X economy suite of papers is still coming out, so we're not entirely sure what that full picture will look like. Um, the contracts have been awarded for cohorts one and two, so that's entry this September, entry next September, working through the system, and there is a possibility of that contract then being uh, awarded for two further cohorts in 23-24 and 24-25. So essentially provision has been put in place for the next four to six years. Obviously the apprenticeship takes longer than a year. Um, committee has also advocated very strongly for all age apprenticeships and those are now being introduced uh, for those over 25. So this apprenticeships uh, NI21 will be targeted primarily at 16 to 24. Uh, they will get 100% of provision funded. Then the 25 plus all age apprenticeship will have 50% funding covered. So it's not on the same level, but it's much more significant than the provision there was before. And I imagine the committee will want to talk about seeking 100% funding provision for that going forward, particularly um, looking forward into the autumn, potentially when furlough ends and we're looking at more than likely significant rises in unemployment. Um, the length of the apprenticeship is, is roughly four to five years, so further funding will need to be secured by the department. It's only got funding for the first year and outlined funding for the second. Um, and it's seen by the minister and the department as a key tool for getting people back into work, um, following the impact of COVID, following the end of furlough, following the end of support schemes, which are all likely to be coinciding um, in the autumn time. Hopefully, the high street stimulus scheme will, will come in there and play some role in, in job generation, but again, the, the department is looking to put in place other things. So, moving then to level three, uh, there will be a new advanced technical award. Um, we will provide at some stage going forward a, a schematic for this because I appreciate the new names are very much like the old names. Um, and it is helpful to have a diagram. But once we've got to a point where the department have finalised everything and bring them in for a briefing, we'll have that provided. So this again will feed into the ERAP and the 10X uh, economy vision. Um, and the key objective here is to address long-standing um, 
productivity challenges and gaps in our skills offering that members are well aware of, that the committee has identified and that we've heard uh, a number of times from employer interaction. So the award will build on the level two traineeship and provide an alternative pathway to le learners who wish to pursue a vocational route to higher skills, education and employment. So it, it kind of it, it provides another pathway other than the apprenticeship, um, but is equally seen as potentially leading into university or leading into uh, management within a number of sectors. Um, the comment the department has made with this is that it will this uh, level three technical uh, advanced technical award will feed significantly significantly into the increase of proportion of individuals achieving level three, four, and five qualifications. I, I suppose, Chair, all of these uh, programmes are aimed at creating that continuum the committee has talked about before, where jump on at level one, there, there's a pathway to level two and level three, or jump on at two, level three and onwards again, jump on at level three, and four, five and six are opened up as well. So members may want to um, give views so far, and obviously, as I say, this has all kind of landed on us fairly quickly. Um, we will seek to get a briefing from the department. I, I would suggest members in September once everything is pinned down, service levels agreements are in place, contracts are all awarded, and we have a full picture of how this will all work and how it will interact and that wonderful schematic to explain it all. Chair, but if members want to make any comments thus far. Yeah. Peter, um, thanks for going through that for us. I, um, you have highlighted a few of the issues certainly that I wanted to bring up and if we go back first of all to the, the level two and the issue of it moving solely into the FE colleges. Um, we were contacted last year when they, the new traineeship was yeah. kind of postponed for the year so it might be worth getting some views around that from the training providers just in respect of their thoughts about it being delivered solely within FE and my my initial thinking around it would be, you know, those young people who are slightly further from education who have been failed by the school system and who, um, you know, FE might not be a suitable route for them even once they have come through a level one with a training provider if that's their pathway. So um, I think that certainly that would be something we might like to get some feedback around. Um, okay, sure. If members agree we pursue that, uh, we already have contacts with the alternative providers. Um, they have their own forum, so I, I imagine they have a fair bit they want to tell us on this. Yeah. So if members are content, we go ahead and pursue that. Thank you, Peter. Um, then the the learning online one, Peter, as well that you mentioned. Um, yeah, there's scope in level one um, for that, and. You might recall, Chair, in the informal meeting with the FE colleges, they've talked about trying to preserve that hybrid model of offering, offering courses online um, to students with specific needs. And, and you'll recall as well from the University of Ulster informal meeting, they have a, a neurodiversity group that is looking at how young people on the uh, autism spectrum respond better to those online um, lectures that they can download and then send in questions rather than being in the live uh, auditorium with you know potentially tens or, or, or dozens of other people. Um, so it is something they're looking at. It hasn't really been pinned down. 
It's a little vague at, at the minute. Am I thinking around it would be people who have access to broadband issues and also we know of some um, schemes that have been run out here through the Department of Education yeah. during COVID and also in England through the Department for Education there whereby um, data is made available to people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds to make sure that young people do have access to um, learning online. So that might be something that we want to see if the department has given any thought around. Chair, if members are, are content, we'll put that into the DALO readout for comment from the department as to how they think that'll be managed. And then I suppose just the final thing for me before bringing other people in would be around, see the level three advanced technical award, yeah. um, which is um, equivalent to, to kind of A-levels. Um, what's the progression there? Because A-levels, obviously, you can go straight into a degree. If you complete the level three, do you have to go level four or five before you could go to a degree? Sure, that's the intention, that level three would lead automatically into four and five, and potentially some provisional level three will start you on level four if you progress to a certain point. The, the department's intention is that there would be a, a completely smooth transition. As members will be aware, if uh, a young person progresses onto level four and five, they may well be able to complete a foundation degree that allows them to enter university at second year. So the continuum is there, um, but it also allows um, employers to understand that they have an A-level equivalent that is in a specific occupational area that will allow them to go straight into the workplace without necessarily having a great deal of further training, but the continuum to four and five is there. Okay, it might be useful for a schematic. Yeah, that's, that's where we, we need to go with this, Chair. As I say, this, this was sent to us by the Department um, on fairly short notice, and um, ideally we want a briefing on all of this once detail yeah. is pinned down. I'm sorry, I did say it was my final point, but the one, I see the, the level two, so it seems to be post GCSE, despite being GCSE level, is that right? Because it says you need to have grades F and G. That's going to be a, an age um, situation. So the, the assumption is that all young people will be in school to 16 until they can officially leave um, and that they will have at least done GCSE. This means that there, there's a, an entry requirement, but as the, the uh, paper says, it's four at GCSE grade G, maths and English at grade F, which to me then would suggest that actually you're looking for six, but I think it does mean four, two at G, maths and English at F. Okay. But again, I think that's useful to get clarification on a schematic for that. Um, the paper doesn't go into great depth. Yeah, so these courses won't be available to GCSE level students. It's post GCSE. That's the understanding, Chair, but I suppose the assumption would be that if you go for the, and the committee has talked about this, the big reform of the education continuum, you, you look at 14 provision onwards, and that's where the 14 to 19 strategy comes in. Um, members will recall that the Department for Economy and Department for Education are looking at a 14 to 19 strategy, and the Department for Education is currently um, working on an, an, another department, but obviously there are those that are going to be working on an independent review of education. So this is where that would become relevant. If you have alternative provision at 14, then this would be brought in as a replacement for GCSE. Um, that's what I'd said at the outset, where the Department for the Economy has this kind of provision, but is limited to offering post-16 because obviously the Department for Education is up to 16. 
and this is where the two don't necessarily integrate properly. Um, so I suppose the department's thinking, and again, it'll be interesting to hear what officials say, but the hint here is that they are forward thinking that this would actually be brought down to people going into this at 14 rather than doing GCSE. It effectively would become a replacement. What they're basically banking on now is that most young people will have done some GCSE, leave school at 16, then if they've met a minimum requirement they will go into this. It, it does feel like duplication, but it's, it's where those two remits hit. Um, you know, that's where the impasse is and that's what 14 to 19 mm -hmm. needs to look at. Okay, well it would be useful to get some clarity around that and the, the cross-departmental piece is going to be important in that respect. Um, John O'Dowd, can we bring John into the spotlight please, Tommy? Yep, he's in. Uh, thank you, Chair, and thank you, Peter, and fair play to Peter for trying to unravel that briefing from the department because I don't know about the schematic, but I need to lay down in the dark room after trying to work out what the paper is telling me, and in fairness, Peter has given a very good presentation on it. But as someone who is used to working with civil service jargon, can't understand it. How are employers and employees and parents going to understand it going into the future? So if I was to make an appeal to the department, I would ask them to come back and put it into a context which is understandable to those people who it is being presented to, and the most important people it's being presented to is young people, employers, and uh, their parents who are the main, still the main source of careers guidance moving forward. It may well be a very good idea, but I just don't know. So I'll, I'll wait on the briefing from the officials to see if they can unpackage it. Um, as I say, Peter's done a very, very good job on it there in Farmerstown. But the point I was going to make is this. This, from what I understand of it, fits in with the ministerial statement yesterday and the presentation of the first start report. Um, because it's how we measure success in academia, fortunately. Uh, and we currently measure that through five, what's known as five good GCSEs, A star uh, to C grade, which is fair enough. Uh, but young people develop at different stages and will be interested in different styles and types of learning and how they uh, develop the skills to present themselves to the workplace. And if we get it, and yesterday's report talked a lot about early years, which is fair enough, but the danger in that is if you concentrate on early years, you forget about uh, young people 14, 16, 16 to 18, etc., and then you lose a generation. So this report has to, or this strategy has to fit in uh, to the Department of Education strategies. So, so the point I'm trying to make is that this may be a good way of encouraging young people to obtain skill sets which are useful to uh, employers, uh, but that remains to be seen. I am concerned and continue to be concerned that certain schools, and it's largely grammar schools, won't allow careers uh, advisors in to discuss these things because uh, young people in some grammar schools don't do as well as the school would have expected GCSE level and they're asked or encouraged to leave to go elsewhere and this may be the career pathway for them uh, because uh, as I said at the start of my uh, discussion here is that young people learn in different ways and how we measure success should be, but measuring success in education should be 
that we have uh, create or, or help to encourage a young person to be everything they can. That's the measure of education. That's the measure of success. Uh, and if we can get, if we can encourage young people to be everything they can, then they become invaluable or they become valuable employees and contributors to society. So it's not so much a question as a comment, though. My, my hope is that the department comes back with a document that <coughs> and employers and employ potential employees can understand. Thank you. Thanks, John. Chair, if I can just come back on a couple of points. Um, the, the paper talks about having talked to stakeholders, having worked on this and done the pilots with employers, with the colleges and with the unions. So um, theoretically, th there is that read across of key stakeholders where they have inputted into making this understandable for them. And I think that's another thing the committee is going to need to pin down is whether or not um, the employers particularly get this, understand it and are ready for its rollout. So that might be another um, action chair I, I would suggest to the committee is if we contact our employer stakeholders and ask if they understand what's going on, if they've been briefed, if they know what to expect, because this will be going live from September. Um, the, the other thing was the careers advice. Um, interestingly, members will be aware of this. We, we, it's, it's come into briefings on occasion from the department that careers advice has been done online during COVID. And that has actually often involved parents who, who are more likely now to, to be effectively in the room when this is happening. And the, the, the feedback from the career services, there's, there's been kind of a lot of light bulb moments where parents are realising that A-levels are not the only alternative, that university is not the only alternative. So, Chair, what Mr O'Dowd said is, is, is really key to that 14 to 19 piece, uh, which part of the, the, the long title is you know, career strategy. Um, where young people get that information, but more importantly, their parents do, because the parents are, are, are going to be huge influencers at that stage. And not all schools, as Mr O'Dowd says, are, are providing access. Um, if there was more of the mandate left, it's an issue that I know the committee um, would want to pursue in terms of potentially looking at legislation that's been discussed in the previous mandate that was cut short. Um, so it, it's a real issue. The career service knows it's an issue. The department knows it's an issue. But again, it's where the two, um, the two remits, economy and education, meet and don't necessarily gel or dovetail. Um, and I appreciate the complexity of this. Members will be highly aware that the Department for the Ecology, Economy, Ecology? Economy has produced more papers in the last couple of months than I think it has in the previous two, three years, that all theoretically align, um, which I think is one of the reasons why this sort of paper popped up um, and we, we really didn't have um, sufficient organisation or time to get a briefing done. Also, the fact that we, we have a lot of questions that I think need to be answered and we'd want those done in a briefing as well. Um, so I, I, I take on board everything um, Mr O'Dowd has said and we try and feed back as much of that in the Dallow readout as we possibly can. Thanks, Peter. Mike? Chair, thank you. And, and let me start positively by saying I agree with, with John O'Dowd. Um, I think our, our focus has to be on creating the environment and the architecture that allows each individual to become the person they are supposed to be. Uh, and if we achieve that, then those individuals will help transform our economy and equally economic activity will, will transform the lives of the people we, we are here to serve. 
I am struck that, that we're, we're talking the day after the, the publication of Fair Start. And two of the comments that, that really leapt off the page to me in that report were that we need a culture change in how we view academic and vocational education, and that we lack a parity of esteem and a, and a lack of understanding of the different values of academic and, and vocational uh, education and training. So on that basis, what we're discussing here, I think, is incredibly important. But I also think it's incredibly complicated uh, as somebody coming to it fresh. Now, the, the former is obviously a good thing, uh, not so much the latter. So I, I guess my question is, as Peter says, we now have skills for life and work being proposed, but we already have skills for your life and skills for work. So if I'm a 16-year-old coming out of school, am I supposed to have the capacity to know which of those three is the one for me? And if I'm an employer, a potential employer, am I supposed to know which one of the three I'm supposed to be looking for in the potential employee that I might, might be interviewing? It, it just seems to me it's too confusing uh, terrain. Uh, and as Peter said, there's maybe 87 providers across the UK. Does that mean it's like universities where some have a reputation, they're very good for the arts, uh, or somewhere else is a place to go if you want to be a doctor, somewhere else is a place to go on another specific, which would run against, I think, the stated ambition of these awards being nationally and internationally recognised. So I don't, I don't think there are answers to be had around this table, but, but certainly I think these are questions that need to be put to, to the department, because as I say, that this is about the future lives of our young people. Chair, it might also be worth flagging it. We have Sia in on the 23rd. Um, this is obviously going to have an impact on the, on the regulation of the, the landscape of qualifications. Uh, we, we've had a preliminary discussion with the interim chief executive who agrees with the colleges that this landscape is way crowded and is looking for ways to, um, I suppose, moderate the number of bodies that are used. Uh, fortunately, the, the interim chief executive has come from that English system, knows it, knows the people, and um, I think has, has a good understanding of how that can be done, but also will be able to talk to us about what their understanding of all of this is, how this will fit into the system, and where it fits into alignment with, for example, the 14 to 19 strategy, with the skills strategy that's out for consultation, with the various parts of the 10x economy uh, that it's to be linked to, with the economic recovery action plan, which it's to be linked to. It's, it's an, a lot of um, detail, a lot of documentation. And as uh, Mr. Nesbitt has said, for young people to be able to access this without necessarily getting the careers advice input that they need is, is going to be very difficult and you know they, they are going to be looking to their parents for advice and parents are, are going to be looking at this and thinking this is nothing like what I remember, I have no idea what's going on. So, although the, the department has talked about clearer branding, um, I would suggest, Chair, that maybe less fancy branding, call it what it is, it's a level two whatever, it's a level three whatever, it's a level one whatever, um, rather than the 
creating confusion by a slightly different title that is very much like a couple of other titles that have been combined, but it's not quite that. And it, it is hard to understand. And I think that was part of um, today was about giving members a chance to discuss this. We rarely get the chance to pause and actually discuss these kinds of things. And it also follows on from four and five presentation last week from the department. Um, so th those are all key issues that, that we can feed back to the department. But I think the department will agree with um, all of the, the information we've had from them. They, they know what the issues are, um, but there's still going to be that difficult bottom line of without buy-in from Park for Education and the schools and the system there, mm -hmm. the, the Department for the Economy is left at 16 plus trying to fill gaps, um, support uh, and, and facilitate those who have not um, had the best experience at school that hasn't really worked for them. Um, so the, the review of education, as members have pointed out, um, really needs to be a key part of this overall picture and fit in with the um, systems that the economy department is setting in place, but at the minute are only kicking in at 16 after all of those years previously. Chair, just a final comment, if I may. Paragraph 28 suggests the department was on track to award the contracts at the end of May. So could we perhaps ask if that has been done, how many and who uh, were awarded contracts? Thank you. Thank you. Can we bring Gary in? Uh, he's in the spotlight. Go ahead, Gary. There yeah, thanks, uh, Chair. Uh, thanks to Peter as well for uh, trying to, um, I suppose, give us a breakdown of exactly what has been said within uh, the paper. I think that was very useful. Um, obviously, this is a very important uh, piece of work, which we need to ensure uh, that, it, that, is, that it is done right. Um, uh, Peter has also mentioned, the clerk has also mentioned, obviously, the fact that there are a lot of uh, papers and there's a lot of strategies uh, within the department at this point in time. Uh, that's obviously a good thing. Um, however, it is important that, you know, with these strategies that there seem to be a joint up uh, approach and that we, 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 we deliver, I suppose, on what the strategies are intended to do. Um, I, I do have a concern, uh, however, uh, I think that we need to uh, ensure that the employers uh, will get this, that the employer, employers will understand uh, exactly uh, what, what's going to be entailed, uh, but also, uh, I suppose most importantly, that, that the, the young people, and I raised this uh, last week when we discussed the level four and level five provisions around you know, how do we reach those uh, most disadvantaged within our communities. Uh, it ties in very much with uh, the report that was launched um, yesterday by the Education Minister in relation to the, the educational underachievement piece. This all needs to be joined up. I, I remain to be convinced and we need to see how that that's going to be done. Uh, my suggestion was that, you know, Peter, I don't know if, we, if there's any information in terms of how the department is engaging with uh, the Department for Education and other departments as well. Uh, you mentioned that this will be going live uh, in September. Um, I take your point as well around you know, how uh, people understand this. It can't just be you know, fancy graphics and branding. It needs to be very clear. Uh, you know, young people need to know, um, you know what, what their options are. That, that needs to go at every level throughout our, our systems. Um, so it's just that, that was the point, just around the engagement piece. And I think it is useful and, or would be useful if we get a, a briefing from the department 
uh, sooner rather than later, whether that's informally or formally, I think it would be useful that we do that. Thanks, Chair. Thanks, Gary. And I'm just picking up on Gary's point, and we asked this of officials last week in the level four and five, is the tie-in with DFC, particularly around the employability piece, and if there is that joined up work going on there as well as with education? Chair, I think that that's probably the, I think as, as Mr Middleton has said, that's the briefing that really is going to be key, is not just how the um, DFE elements fit together, but how they fit with what education is doing and what communities is doing. Um, so yeah, what we try and do is I think the best discussion may be an informal one, um, because that allows a different time scale and also allows uh, much more interaction than a formal committee meeting. So we, we might look to do that sooner rather than later. So I'd said we'd see on the 23rd. We actually have them on the 30th. Um, but hopefully they also will be able to give that input. But we communicate with all the stakeholders mentioned by members to see what their understanding of this is. Because I am just really conscious of the fact it's now June. Mm -hmm. This goes live. All three levels go live in September. And the level one is only an interim qualification. So there will be a replacement. But when is that going to happen? And, there is a lot going on there. It's a really, really busy landscape. Um, so I think, yeah, all of that clarification, Chair, we will try and pin down as much as we possibly can. Okay, thank you. So, Chair, yeah, go ahead, John. Do you want me to make a comment? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, thank you, Chair. The uh, paragraph seven of the paper it, it talks about who the department engaged with as it developed the proposal. How often did the department come to the committee to brief us on their thinking, as their, their direction they were going in, in terms of this policy? Chair, if I can step in there, what we've had from the department are maybe three or four general briefings of, I suppose, skills and, and wider context. They've uh, indicated that they would be looking at different levels, but in terms of say, for example, this level one, two and three, this is the first time we've seen this level of detail. And also with the four and five briefing last week, that was the, the biggest amount of detail we've had on that specific as well. Um, I, I think that the department has, has done the pilots, but part of our problem has been our missing time and COVID. Um, the pilots have been going on through 2018 and 19. So the normal run of things would have been bringing that to committee at the time. But we effectively missed all that coming back in in January 2020. And we did have um, a number of planned um, briefings on this before COVID came. And members, we, we'll see this later on in the meeting, but members would also, I, I would draw their attention to the um, department's um, June monitoring paper where they are still carrying a really significant number of vacancies in a lot of business areas. So I, I think this has been a, a perfect storm, if you like, of the Assembly's hiatus, uh, COVID, and the amount of workforce that has been switched to COVID. So they've just about managed to get these through for a September start and decided to kind of go ahead with that. But Chair, I, I totally take on board everything members are saying in terms of... I suppose suddenness, um, but there, there really has been a perfect storm around this. Um, the concern I think that, that members have echoed is that the audience, the consumer, if you like, the, the young people, 
and their parents are going to be the key audience here and, and what do they know and how do they understand it. So it, it'll be useful to get feedback from the colleges as well as to what, you know, what they're doing around presenting this to young people um, and also from the careers advice service in terms of what young people already know. So if members are content, we'd also like uh, you know, to write to them and ask what exactly they're, they're telling people, what exactly are young people in the picture on with this. You know, we, we now know these are going to be launched in September. What do young people know? Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And we do know, I think, Peter, and you can keep me right in this, that the Student Union were involved in this piece yes, of work. Chair. So it might be also useful to um, hear from them, their views around it. Yeah, will do. Okay. Okay, if people are happy enough, we will, will we go back and agree our minutes? Yes, Chair, let's, okay. let's go back for decisions. Um, okay. So... Going back then to item number two, which is our draft minutes, which are at page five of your pack for the minute or the meeting held on the 26th of May. And just to ask members if they're content that those minutes are an accurate reflection of the meeting. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Um, Chair, if we just get an agreement to note all the chairs, our chair's business items. Yeah, so that was 3.1, 3.2, 3.3 and 3.4. There were... Actually, only 3.1, 2 and 4 had uh, actions to note, so if members are content with those. Thank you, Chair. Okay, thank you. So we're going to move on. Oh, we'll do the LCM report. Do the LCM. So we're going to go to item number 4 now, which is the report on the Legislative Consent Memorandum on the UK Government Rating Coronavirus and Directors Disqualification Dissolve Companies Bill. So there's a clerk's memo at page 22. The LCM bill is at page uh, 25. The draft economy committee report on the LCM is at page 33. And then there is the responses from FSB at page 46, Newry Chamber at page 47, the Labour Relations Agency at page 48, Deloitte at page 49, NGIC 2 at page 50. There is a copy of the bill itself at page 14 of table papers and the explanatory memorandum at page 24 of table papers. And just to remind members, at last week's meeting on the 26th of May, the committee considered the LCM and a draft motion from the Minister in relation to the Rating Coronavirus Director's Disqualification Bill. The LCM was laid in the Business Office on the 20th of May, following the bill being introduced in the House of Commons on the 12th of May. Um, the committee had written to relevant stakeholders requesting submissions in relation to the LCM and the information that was available at that time and has received four substantive submissions which have been outlined in the draft committee report. Um, the draft committee report is at page three of... Chair, it's at, it's at page... Yes. 33, sorry, sorry there's 33. three missing there. Um, and the clerk will give us a wee bit of an overline, uh, overview of the report and then if there's any questions or comments then we can take those. Chair, the, the LCM report is very similar to what members will have seen on inquiry reports of the old style and uh, bill reports. So it begins in all sorts of ways members would expect with the powers of membership. In, in terms of this LCM, um, it's been described by the stakeholders as a technical LCM. 
and the four stakeholder groups that responded, uh, none of them had any issues with this. They were content that this is useful and necessary uh, in the current corona environment. Um, the report itself is, again, following a pattern. So the bulk of it sets out what the bill does. It then highlights what the areas that impact directly on Northern Ireland are. Obviously, this is a legislative consent motion, so it's dealing in matters that would normally be devolved, but it makes sense to uh, do on a, a Westminster basis, um, because that then legislation is overarching and fits in with existing coronavirus legislation. The um, report also reflects the comments made by the four stakeholder groups and comes to the conclusion that members need to consider that the committee is content with the legislative consent motion uh, going forward and that the report ultimately reflects that. Um, if I take members through the opening paragraphs to, page, to paragraph 18 are just a bit of background on what the um, bill does. 19 through to um, 27 is really just background on what the clauses do specifically. Then 28 onwards um, gives the provisions that are relevant to the legislative consent motion, i.e. what directly affects us here. And then moving on from that, um, you have 29 is the human rights and equality, and the bill is considered um, through legal advice compatible with the European Convention on Human Rights. And for us, there have been no equality issues raised with any of the Section 75 groups. The financial implications are that this does not necess necessitate any cost to the public pur purse, sorry, which is always worth noting. Regulatory impacts. A full assessment has not been done, as is the case with coronavirus legislation. It doesn't go through the normal process. So the initial findings and the findings locally are that, yes, this is fit for purpose, that it doesn't contravene uh, VERES, and that it's well within the law as set out already, um, that it protects uh, the business community here and members of the public from individuals who have demonstrated they are unfit to be concerned in the management of a limited company and that the company going out of business does not stop them from being disqualified as a director, which has been the case previously. So people would declare bankruptcy and reappear again as a director. This closes the loophole, if you like, in that legislation. Ministerial view, uh, paragraph 32, is that the minister agrees that uh, in the interest of establishing a disqualification regime that is appropriate and, and fits with our neighbouring jurisdictions, that this uh, is legislation that needs to come forward and that the department and executive is content that Westminster legislates on our behalf in this matter. Then the committee consideration at paragraph 33 onwards is discussions the committee have had and correspondence from the minister, and then 40 onwards is the summary of responses from our key stakeholders. Conclusion is paragraph 44, and I just read that one out. On the basis of the very limited time available to the committee to scrutinise this legislative consent motion, and members are aware 
legislative consent motion reports are turned around in a very short space of time, 10, to 10 working days. And bearing in mind the Minister's view that it's necessary for the legislation to be undertaken by the Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, the Committee supports the Bill in enabling the Department to investigate the conduct of company directors to include former directors of dissolved companies to commence disqualification proceedings against them where public interest criteria are met and to seek compensation where their conduct has caused loss to creditors. Paragraph 45, but he would ask the Minister engages with stakeholders where any particular issues have been raised with regard to the Bill and the LCM. So that takes us, Chair, to whether or not members are content with the report. Okay. Um, thanks for that, Peter. And just on the, on the final paragraph, um, is that something we can also feed back to the Department and ask for those two specific points? Um, from Neary Chamber and Deloitte, I think it was. And Chair, the, the other thing to remind members too, because we've not had an LCM for a while, um, is that obviously the, the, the motion itself, the legislative consent motion, will be responded to by yourself and any member who wishes to, based on the report and the input we've had from stakeholders, so that again, uh, the issue of uh, paragraph 45 will be reiterated then. Because this is largely covering a, an area of devolved um, work, the Minister would subsequently be able to amend any issues through legislation here. And just I suppose that the point being, you know, obviously um, legislative consent motions are never the ideal way to do legislation, um, but this is coronavirus legislation and the committee has taken that into consideration. Is that something maybe we could reflect in even our comments when we're making Absolutely. it? Chair, we, we look to reflect that. that that's pretty much a, a core response in any legislative consent motion is that this is not an ideal way to do business, that the Assembly has certain devolved powers and that it is always an issue if those are being exercised by Westminster, hence this process. Um, so we will, we will reflect that in the, um, in the comments that, that you will have. Um, it's not ideal, but coronavirus has, has meant a lot of legislation going through very rapidly to try and, um, I suppose, provide stability. This, interestingly, or not, um, also addresses a loophole that's been there for a long time, but sadly anticipates um, what, what is likely to happen in the autumn with um, people cutting their losses, closing down businesses, dissolving businesses, cutting loose on creditors and so on. This is really an anticipation of that happening. Um, once furlough ends and, and other supports are withdrawn. Um, so when it closes that loophole, it's, it's obviously reflective of what may well come in the autumn. Um, and that needs to be legislated for, I suppose, on a more holistic basis at Westminster, um, just to provide that sort of universal um, protection. Does anybody have any comments they want to make? Just one, Chair. I get that there is a gap and that this needs to be closed down, and that, that's very clear. The one thing that kind of surprised me was you, you, this will also apply to somebody who has used influence to encourage uh, a director to close a business, dissolve a business, without going through insolvency. Chair, where, where that comes from is um, I'm, I'm going to think about how I say this diplomatically. Where dissolution of a company where declaration of bankruptcy is used as a tactic or device, um, this will also close that loophole where 
there's no comeback at the minute if if that is a tactic being employed professionally by those who should be advising better. Um, and again, that also infringes on law where advice is being given to that effect. This closes that loophole and it means now there will be, I suppose the right word would be sanctions. Sanctions, yes. Yeah. My only concern, Peter, is, you know, well, if I was a professional advisor and I was giving that advice, it certainly wouldn't be on paper. And then I'm thinking about if I'm a director who's unscrupulous enough to just dissolve the company and shed my creditors, don't care about you, and I'm transferring all my assets into a new company, I might be malicious enough to say, oh, well, I was advised to do that sure. by, by a named advisor. The, the, the protection for that is that that would all have to be... Um, Advice would have to be produced. Um, there's a, what's the phrase? There's, there's a, a minimal level of evidence required for prosecution in these cases or, or, or fulfilment of the legislation in these cases. So that would all have to be there, um, which, as you say, is probably not going to be easy to find. Um, advice like this is not something you will generally seek to put down in writing or paper, but it's it's really just seeking to close the gap where it already exists. Um, I think that the department um, in, in London doesn't expect that those people, those advice, people who provide advice, are likely to be caught in any significant numbers, but it's for those that they can, and it's, I guess, issuing that warning again that this is not legal behaviour. Yeah, I guess I'm not objecting. I'm just, just thinking it's, it's messy. I think, Chair, again, it's, it's, it's reflected in, in the, the comments that had been made by um, the department, the parent department base, that this would go through a very different process if it wasn't COVID-related um, and would have been done over a much longer period with much um, greater work put into being an awful lot tidier. What I suspect is this will be rethought and repackaged further down the line. And as I said, the minister will be able to refine this because it falls within um, her competence or, or, or whatever minister's competence. Thank you. Can I ask a question? Yeah, go ahead, John. Uh, just in relation to the rethinking of the legislation at a future date, is there a sunset clause and will it require primary legislation to change it? Chair, no, not, not in this. It's because it closes loopholes. Um, it's not necessarily seen as requiring a sunset clause. So it, I can put this. It's, it's not like some of the coronavirus legislation, like the the health regulations and so on, that will fall away once they are no longer necessary. This is doing something that's necessary, but um, coronavirus is the reason why the usual process has been short circuited. Um, so this will evolve um, at a future date, but it's not got a sunset clause. But what the department. Um, in England will have to do because it's been coronavirus related. It's challengeable beyond the coronavirus period uh, when we no longer have an officially declared pandemic. This legislation's uh, title effectively does what it says on the tin, so it would no longer be um, easily enforceable. It could be legally challenged because it's, it's specific to coronavirus. So further legislation will have to be brought. The ideal would be that that's done locally. 
Um, mm. And that would be what um, would, would be the plan by any kind of economy minister going forward. Because this, as I say, it's not going to sunset clause per se, but I suppose the sunset clause is it's coronavirus related and therefore would be open to challenge beyond that period. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, thank you. Okay, so are, are members then content? So, Peter, what do I have to be? So, so Chair, they, um, there's no proposed amendments other than reflecting in the comments, and, and perhaps if we reflect the points about it being um, related to the pandemic, and that that we anticipate that there will be further legislation required, and potentially there may be things that. Oh, people want to look at it in more detail at that point. Chair, we'll bring that to the, the motion. So what I would propose to do, Chair, is um, circulate your draft speaking note to the entire committee um, so the members are aware of what's being said. And it also means members, if they choose to, can comment on particular issues um, during the, the motion debate. These, well, this particular or technical style doesn't generally get much comment but it, it does mean members know what, what the committee's said in its report and therefore know what you'll be saying and can say something else or say something more specifically. Okay, so then are members content with paragraphs 1 to 43 of the draft report and the conclusions of paragraph 44 and 45? Thank you. And then just to seek members' agreement for the report to be published on the committee's webpage and issued to all MLAs prior to the assembly debate, which is scheduled for the 28th of June. Mm -hmm. okay. Thank you, members. So we're going to move on then to item number six, which is the departmental written briefing on the skills strategy consultation. Um, at page 61 of your pack, there is a memo from the department indicating the consultation on the strategy will last 12 weeks, including online stakeholder events. Um, have we had a, a list of those or anything yet? Yeah, Chair, we have um, 27 and we'll bring, um, we circulate information to members um, for next Thursday's event. So I think we've had, Tommy, am I right? I think we've already had nearly 20 responses or 15? We've had 15. 15 responses. To have declined, um, so we g up the, the the others tomorrow. Um, but I would expect a fairly good turnout for that. And those that have declined, it's it's specific, specific reasons of diary clashes. Um, so we'll have all the papers for that uh, out to members in the Friday pack, and we're timing it again for ten until noon Thursday next week with members joining from eleven until noon, um, following the round table discussion. Um, the Maybe you want to just tell Mike. Yeah, Chair. Uh, the the inquiry um, is basically it's a it's a foreshortened inquiry process. You you'll recall from other committees, inquiries lasting months, nay years. Um, we haven't really got that level of time in the short period left in the mandate. So the committee has developed a model of micro inquiries that are based on um, either forthcoming policy issues from the department. So, for example, prior to the energy strategy coming, the committee did a micro-inquiry into what should be in the strategy. Same with the skills strategy, and we also then did a, a piece on what our macroeconomic issues are that would then inform the committee's scrutiny of both the Economic Recovery Action Plan and the 10x economy suite of papers. So this is a continuation of that model. The one next week focuses on the High Street Stimulus Voucher Scheme, 
and the 10x first paper overarching innovation vision. So it's basically three questions that stakeholders will discuss in roundtable groups and then come back together at 11. That starts at 10, they come back together at 11 when members will be present for the feedback. The feedback informs a short report that the committee can consider, talk about, amend, as, as however they wish. Then that will lead to the committee bringing a motion for debate in the chamber. It allows us to bring the issue into the chamber within weeks rather than months. Um, and means it's very much more live for stakeholders, and we, we actually get that interaction of stakeholders rather than the procession of people um, separately. And stakeholders hear what, what each other, um, you know, each other's thoughts on this. So it's worked pretty well, and it allows us to get things turned around quick enough to have a committee view and a committee position before the actual um, consultation or policy comes out, so that members are already informed and know what stakeholders are likely to want from a strategy. So you'll see that when we, when we go on to the um, stuff here about the skills strategy consultation. So the one next week, we do it via Zoom, because that's still our best medium for the sort of round table discussion, breakout rooms, and, and just coordinating the whole thing. And we're supported by our outreach team to do it. Um, but yeah, I think it's, members have found it very useful um, in terms of a feedback has been good from yeah, well. stakeholders it's it's that to our commitment they're not having to write lengthy pieces for us they're not having to wait weeks or months to come and present so it's it's a bit instantaneous i suppose um one of the um things that we've been told by our various stakeholders at the minute is that there is consultation fatigue because there's so much going on with brexit and with covid and that um as representative groups that they find it difficult to keep on top of all of that so this is kind of uh, a shortened version of a consultation that's really live and it seems to work quite well yeah, it, it just it eliminates that need for them to write lengthy papers exactly. and, and for us to process over a period of months. It's it's been faster to run. Usually, the the committee's default response in the past has been right. There's the skills strategy consultation. Now we'll do an inquiry. Whereas this means we can preempt that. Yeah. Right. Sounds good. Okay. So then, page sixty three of your pack. There's a press release press release from the department regarding the consultation at page sixty six. The consultation summary document with the full-length version then at page 81. Um, then 6.2 at page 52 of your table papers is the report from the committee's micro-inquiry into what stakeholders <coughs> would have liked to have seen in the skills strategy. So Peter's going to go through the commonalities between um, the actual public strategy and the committee's report and uh, highlight any differences that are there as well. So. Chair, it's, it's me again. Um, this, this will be unusual for, for members, and I, I assure Mr Nesbitt that this is not normally what happens. We do have witnesses come, but today's just been, been um, the way this has worked out. So what I do is I flag up what happened in the skills micro-inquiry first, so that members can be reminded of that before we look at what the consultation's looking at. So the event we held for the skills uh, strategy micro-inquiry was in January and based on two questions. Uh, what changes to institutional design, collaboration and delivery of skills are required to ensure our workforce, including the unemployed, underemployed, people with disabilities and economically inactive, can move into well-paid work which meets the skills demands of local companies, 
now and going forward? And the second question, what measures are required to support continuous skills development across all age groups and abilities and to ensure access to lifelong learning opportunities that will improve lifetime earnings, pension contributions and increase productivity? So those are the two questions put into the, the round table groups. Obviously, the stakeholders are um, seeing those well beforehand and, and have an idea of what they're coming into. At the same time we were doing that, the department had commissioned a paper from the OECD on uh, skills assessment for Northern Ireland. And similar issues were coming up out of that, and that was kind of where we, where we based the uh, micro-inquiry. So it was flagging up reducing skills imbalances. So we, we have a tendency to have skills in particular areas here. Uh, we, we, we overproduce lawyers, teachers, etc. We don't produce necessarily people where they need to be. Creating that culture of lifelong learning so that it's natural for people to, to continue to take on qualifications and development. Transforming workplaces to make better use of skills. So involving the workforce more, um, I suppose, on the Japanese model of continuous feedback on our processes working. And strengthening the governance of skills policies. Um, that conundrum of, here's a strategy. And you never hear from it again. You know, it's monitoring. It's it's actually building it into ongoing policy. So we we, we took that to the um, the stakeholders and, we, and this um, discussion forum for these two questions. And there were six main themes came out of that. Um, one, supporting people to greater employability, which feeds into what's been discussed today around the levels one, two, and three, where. Qualifications should be work-relevant and understood by employers and young people. It does what it says on the tin. Defining the role of academic institutions, community learning and awarding qualifications. So clear pathways. What is professional and technical? What is academic? What is community-based learning? What do they all do? How do they relate to each other? And where does the pathway lead? Um, response to COVID-19 and economic recovery. Um, the committee has talked a lot about you know the impact COVID has had, what's likely to happen in September, um, the end of furlough, and so on. So really looking at a skills strategy that is capable of providing that access to upgrading and reskilling for people who are going to find themselves unemployed once furlough ends, and for moving people into the new sectors that the department has identified as high growth. Inclusive learning. Um, and workplaces. So the idea that, again, what the OECD report had highlighted of ongoing professional development, um, feedback from workers to management around process, everybody learning and therefore increasing productivity, increasing efficiency and so on. Lifelong learning and a path to leadership. So that continuous development going somewhere, people not just being developed with no outlet for it and then moving on somewhere else. And collaboration, cooperation across government departments, which is probably, I would have said, a theme that has run through just about every inquiry ever undertaken in the Assembly and, and one that is still not particularly well done, although hopefully with, with the type of programme of government and the outcomes-based assessment um, will get better. But skills, as members appreciate, feed right across the peace communities, education, everywhere, uh, and, and needs to be an executive-led um, sort of strategy. So those were the themes that came out. Uh, the committee debated those and um, brought them to the Assembly Chamber. So if I then take you to the consultation itself, so we, we fortunately have two versions of the consultation in the pack. 
the summary version and the extraordinarily long version with all the thinking behind it. I'm going to deal with the summary version, um, which, which members will find that bit more accessible. So the summary version begins at page um, 65 in the pack. So the, the, as, as is the way with these um, consultations, they've got five steps they feel are key to interventions to deliver on economic recovery, the, the 10x economy vision and so on. So those are technologies and clusters. So technologically, no, introducing technology to a greater degree in the workplace to again increase productivity, productivity and efficiency, but also trying to join up um, economic activity. Members are, are, are aware, and, and we've heard it a lot from stakeholders, and, and it's, a, it's, it's a key fact of our economy, that we have a lot of micro-businesses working in our private sector that are doing a really amazing job on their own, but it's how do you draw them together and provide the benefits that clusters offer in terms of perhaps sharing apprentices, sharing backroom functions, sharing technologies, sharing equipment, and so on. So part of this, we'll, we'll look towards doing that. The talent element is obviously all of those skill gaps being filled, providing ongoing relevant employable skills throughout people's workforce. Also diffusing innovation and technology throughout the workplace and workforce so that it gets to every level and is accessible to all businesses, companies and people. Funding, um, creating more challenge funds within the skills piece. Uh, the idea being that it's not always the department that spends the money best. Um, there will be funding provided for um, companies, colleges, other providers, where they can offer something that will bridge a, bridge a skills gap, will bridge a technology gap, will bridge an innovation gap. So it, it's providing that more flexible funding where you remove that element of the department says this is what it's going to be spent on, but that might actually be wrong and might not last for a full period of strategy, which generally lasts 10 years. So it's trying to get around that and provide some flexibility. Um, and also the idea of place, um, doing what we do best here. So an analysis of where the economy here is world-class in, in various fields of life sciences, engineering, um, looking at tourism, which is an industry we want to grow, looking at ICT, which is an industry we're good at but also want to grow, cybersecurity, financial services, fintech generally, areas where we know there is high growth globally, where the salaries are at a higher level than we have, and where productivity for each worker is much, much higher in terms of the value they add. Creating skills continuums into those jobs so that it's not just, well, you, you've got to follow this one path to get there. It's again going back to open up all those alternative vocational, academic and community paths to allow people to have that access to um, a variety of, of, of different growing um, sectors of employment. Also making sure that the commitments in the city deals are deliverable on in terms of skills, um, which is something the committee has talked about a lot of. Again, it's, it's back to that idea of, of making sure everything aligns. 
So the, the strategies from economy align with the city growth deals that are aligning with the high street task force that's aligning with the high street stimulus that's aligning with all the other suite of programmes that are being brought forward. And it's how you do that on a, a constant rolling basis so that your skills programming is always relevant. The, the department is, has admitted, I suppose, that that static model of this is what we're going to do for 10 years just doesn't work. Um, so this will be constantly rolling and evolving, theoretically. And that's the, the element that's being put out to stakeholders. So what the, the consultation then goes on to do is provide, and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to bore you with the detail because you can go back and look at the summary, but it provides background on the issues facing our economy, the areas that they are wanting to target a set down in the 10x economy, the digital ICT and creative industries, agri-food, fintech, financial services, Advanced manufacturing and engineering, which um, we're particularly good at here and can be done on that micro scale. Um, life and health sciences and obviously tourism, which is seen as a growth area. But again, the committee has heard a lot of feedback from the sector on the skills shortage across um, hospitality, tourism generally, tourism management. So there are other policy objectives um, that the skills strategy will seek to address, getting more people into STEM subjects generally, particularly getting more women to study STEM, um, trying to work more jointly with the Department for Education through the 14 to 19 strategy, where young people are given pathways into careers that are clear and that are understood by them, their parents and employers. And Interestingly, members have been talking about the, the fair start. This consultation references the other review that's going on in education, um, the independent review of education holistically, uh, announced last December. But that will have a bearing on how the skills strategy that the Department for the Economy brings forward, because as, as the committee has, has talked about on many occasions, the two systems can't be divorced. You can't have something separate at post-16 and, and something very different prior to that or even post-18. So that's the, the sort of areas that it's going to cover. Um, as I say, there's a lot of very nice graphics and schematics in the, the summary that members can reflect on at their leisure. And then if you go through to... Um, what, what, what uh, the, the department's calling policy enablers, and as effectively, I suppose, it's what they're promising to do or what the executive is promising to do. And there are three clear elements there that I think members will want to, to consider and remember. Developing better policy cohesion, um, which comes up again and again and again, you know, and, and aligning policies so that they actually work with each other. Building stronger relationships. The department has talked a lot um, over the last period when briefing the committee about talking to employers, talking to the colleges, talking to, to unions, talking to any stakeholder that needs to be part of the picture and investing. Um, members might recall that one of the papers um, received by the, the committee from the department and reflected some of the briefings talked of a, a deficit in skills funding um, stretching back to about 2010 that ultimately amounted to somewhere in the region of um, 460 million that should have been there but wasn't, that needs to be addressed if we're going to bring skills forward. So again, that's how to leverage money in skills investment that might have been used in other departments for programmes that perhaps did not have a 
a growth output, if you like, or an output that would lead to further development within a community or so on. I suppose what, what are maybe unkindly called helicopter or parachute projects, it's there for three years and then it leaves. This is the idea that really that, that is not funding that the executive has to waste. It must lead to something else. It must feed into a strategy. And so many of those existing programmes ultimately do have a skills basis. So that needs to be made clear and it needs to be made part of uh, perhaps a community um, pathway to further learning into employment rather than just, yep, yeah, now you've got that skill, off you go. So it's, you've got that skill, the next step is, and it feeds into. So that's a big promise, um, but again, it's part of this um, consultation, I suppose. Chair, what I would say is the consultation doesn't... It's not revolutionary in terms of concept. It's everything we all already know, but it's seeking to put it into one strategy and then follow through with it. So if I leap on then to the, the very end of the long version, said he, scrolling rapidly. Um, actually, you know it's probably better if I come from the other end. Um, you have the list of questions at the end of the consultation. So these deal with specific elements of the background paper in the long uh, version. So you've got your, your questions there for strategic context. There's three questions for that. Are you content with the overarching strategic direction set out in, and then it names all the, the wonderful um, papers that have come out, the Programme for Government, the Economic 10X, Skills Strategy broadly, um, the ERAP, all the other strategies the department has come out with, and members will also be aware that, although it's not mentioned specifically, this feeds into the education strategy and the need for um, Green New Deal jobs. So again, the committee has looked at this and done a fair amount of work on it, and the department has, has stated within its Economic Recovery Action Plan that part of the skills piece will be creating the, the um, structures to educate people to fill those future green jobs. Um, do you agree to rationalise the skills landscape, etc.? Have, have you comments? Then chapter four, strategic goals and policy, and there's a set of questions on that. So again, I won't bore members with um, going through all of those, because we, we are obviously on our short day and we, we need to leave the room at noon. Um, so what I would say is it's there for members' reflection, but the good part of this is obviously that the, the committee acts as super consultee, and we'll be scheduling a briefing of the analysis of responses to the consultation. So it's running for 12 weeks. Um, unfortunately, obviously, that goes into the summertime, which is, is not always the best time, but it's a, it's a reasonable length of time, and the committee has already encouraged stakeholders to respond. So, Chair, if I leave it there, um, it covers the basis that were identified by the committee in its micro-inquiry. Uh, the questions also cover that, um, and... We, we'll see just what the stakeholders think of it when we get the analysis of responses. And obviously the committee may well choose to do further work once it sees what those are. Okay. And Peter, thanks for giving us the overview. And as you've said, it does overlap with what um, our own committee inquiry highlighted. I think there's some good stuff in it in relation to the, the lifelong learning aspect to it, um, which is something obviously that came through very strongly. Um, the need to, you know, um, respond to the the change in nature of our our job market and um, skilling people for those emerging sectors. Um, 
I do have a slight concern about the the wording of rebalancing towards STEM. And I say that as a scientist, as a huge advocate for, for STEM and for, for women in STEM in particular. But I, I think that there is a slight concern there that um, scaling up in STEM might be at the expense of some of the other um, areas of learning. And I don't think that's something that we would want to see. So we might just want to get some... It might actually just be useful for us to have that briefing with the department officials and to seek reassurance around that particular issue. There's a few other wee bits and pieces, obviously, that we might want to discuss out further with them. And you highlighted the one around, for example, the um, skills in the hospitality tourism sector, which has been highlighted to us as a, as a shortage. There's also, um, like, health sciences, um, you know, there's a shortage with, of skills within that area. And there's not been particularly clear-cut coming through in the strategy around, for example, you know, upskilling of, of care workers to nursing, and we know that that is something that has been really successful in terms of the courses sure, the university I think have that's done. One of the real issues, I suppose, with this, it's still very high level. Um, we, we've not seen in any of the documentation how that will work its way out. As you identify, um, health sciences is one of the targeted sectors, but at the minute, we don't really have that perfect continuum. Um, it's not often you turn to America for examples of best practice necessarily in terms of employment but in America there's a, a continuous um, pathway from the, the lowest level um, of medical practitioner, what might be equivalent here to a, um, what was called an auxiliary or a healthcare assistant, right through to that, that often seen as the top of the spectrum, that brain surgeon. Um, in America, you know, a nurse doesn't just have to stop at nurse. There's a, a, an easy pathway through to first becoming a physician's assistant and then actually moving towards becoming a doctor. That's not really been visualised within our system and that's ultimately what this skill strategy theoretically is setting up. So there's a huge amount of on-the-ground work to do with other departments to actually fulfil this. That, that's the, 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 I suppose there's two notes of caution. How this works out in detail on the ground and money. The funding required to really put this um, out at the level it needs to be put out at, to really maximise it, is significant and will have to be drawn from across the executive. So it requires um, that reform of education to release money that will go into skills and elsewhere. So it's got that ambition. Um, but I, I guess those are two things that, that really need to be pinned down. Chair, I think Mr um, O'Dowd yeah. wants to comment. Go on ahead, John. And thank you, Chair. It's, it's a continuation of the previous discussion in relation to the youth training programme. I, I think the skills strategy has huge potential, uh, but I also have concerns that uh, success is measured again in those who work in IT and those advanced industries. Uh, and I've said this before, committee. as I'm sitting here looking at my office window and I see the economic activity going on around me, um, uh, the vans and, and builders' vans and others who are travelling around the town and the activities going on in some of the shops isn't at that level. But it is, it is e economic activity. M much of it is well paid. Um, to try getting a builder uh, to do some work. <laughs> you know, just how well about some of those is related to the rising costs of materials. But there, there is good careers to be had 
uh, in many sectors of our economy. And if we don't train up the young people to work in those sectors of the economy, then th there's opportunities being lost for many young people who may not be academically gifted, but are gifted in many, many different ways, and who can create or who can, can deliver for our economy. So the one word of caution I have around it is that, to me, it is focused heavily towards IT and those advanced technologies rather than a holistic look at our economy moving forward. Chair, I, I, Mr O'Dowd's exactly right in what he's saying. It, it's aimed at that. This is the shiny area that would be great to have and, and it will only be effective if the 14 to 19 strategy is effective, which means creating those pathways from 14 to 19, you're professional and technical, you're academic and you're community-based. And, and that's where bringing this all to fruition is really heavily dependent on, on that input between the education and economy departments. Taking people on post-16 or post-18 to try and fix everything that, that you know, may not have worked out for them in, in compulsory education is not compatible with this. Therefore, it highlights itself, I suppose, that an element of it being brought through is dependent on what's going to happen in education and the two departments bringing forward that 14 to 19 strategy that reflects wider reform. Um, and that's the only way they'll free up the, the money to fund this as well, Chair. Yeah. Um, so absolutely, um, members are, are, are really well aware of the issues on this and how so many things need to align. So if members are agreed, we'll seek a briefing from officials on it and then we can discuss it out in a bit more detail with them. Okay. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to move on then. Do you want me to also do that, Peter, request a briefing on the analysis or...? Yeah, we'll get that into the system now. Um, put that in the data readout. So members are content. We'll also request a briefing on the analysis of responses to the consultation once those are available to us in the autumn. So... Okay, so we're moving on then to item number seven, which is matters arising. Um, on page 186 of your pack, there's a response from the department to our request for further information in relation to the High Street voucher scheme. The department has stated that um, an economic impact assessment is currently being undertaken. Initial analysis on the multiplier effect suggests it's in the region of 140 to 145 for every pound of spend. Um, equality screening is being finalised. A stakeholder engagement plan is being developed. A technology solution will place restrictions on the card to ensure that it can't be used either online or to purchase goods and services outside of the north. The Minister's current policy intent is that it's for people aged 18 and over who are resident here and they will be eligible to register for a prepaid card. Obviously, we had asked that they also consider 16 to 17 year olds and they don't completely rule it out. No, they, Chair, they use a wonderful phrase about mm, we're thinking 18, but we haven't ruled that out. But I, I would be surprised if, they, if there's an extension there, Chair. The business case has been very much on the 18 plus population um, and to widen it out now might cause disruption. Um, 
and then it's anticipated that provision will be made in regulations to allow for benefit disregard and that was an issue obviously raised initially by by John um, about the impact that it could potentially have on uh, people in receipt of uh, benefits so that um, it was a useful enough I guess response from the department um, and in, res in respect to some of the questions the committee had, obviously we're having the micro inquiry next week, the event that Peter has already discussed, um, and that will give us the opportunity to get a wee bit more information from stakeholders around their views um, on, on the uh, scheme. So that's just there for to note at this point. Thank you, Chair. Page 188 then, there's a response from the Executive Office to the Committee's request for further information on the issue of manufacturers in relation to rules of origin, as well as details of any engagement with the, the British Government on the issue. And the Executive Office states that the Economy Minister and officials are engaged with Whitehall to seek urgent solutions. Obviously, we've already had the response from DFE in respect of this, um, and HMRC has advised businesses should explore potential mitigations for this tariff, such as customs processes and the de minimis waiver. So if members are content, we will pass on that response to the manufacturing business who raised it with us. Okay. Thank you. Then page 190, there's a response from the Student Union of Ireland to recent correspondence from the clerk following our engagement with NUS, USA and the Students' Union. Um, Peter, there's actually responses also from the, the Welsh and Scottish and yeah, we, we got all three. We got South Scotland and Wales. Um, Chair, I'm conscious of time, and, and members will want to reflect on this because I think there's more work to be done. But essentially, all the three um, jurisdictions responding have got setups with with government ministers. Some of them to a really, really sophisticated degree. Um, the really we, we don't have any replication of here so what i'd like to do is bring this back again for members to discuss uh, as i say i'm just conscious of time at the minute but it provides us with an awful lot of information um, and I, I think it's something members will want to to look at and, and potentially look to design something with the department and bring it forward um, but very very helpful they were all really fast to come back and really really helpful Okay, so are members content that we would have a slightly broader discussion on that, or does anybody want to make any comment? Sure, I'm conscious of time. Well, it's called participatory democracy. And I'm at a loss as to why the minister has turned her back to engaging with the variety of students' representatives. It's about creating good policy. You would always agree. Um, there's times you have to go into the room and disagree. That's just the nature uh, of the base in many ways, but when you read through those responses from the other jurisdictions, it just highlights what can be achieved when there's a willingness to do so. Yeah. Okay, well look, we will bring it back for a broader discussion and the next item is actually kind of related in relation to um, student issues. There's a written briefing paper there at page 194 of your pack from Ulster University regarding the plans for semester one of the incoming academic year. UU states that public health indications are encouraging and we can, with increasing confidence, begin to look at a fuller resumption of normal on-campus operations. UU is also in the final stages of building the enhanced Belfast campus and looks forward to welcoming staff and students to uh, the new campus in September 2021. So that is just for members to note at this point, but it is part of that discussion around 
the advice that's being given to students at this point in time and what contingency is being put in place for the next academic year. Obviously, we're all hoping that we're continuing on this positive trajectory, but we do see, I suppose, some of the concern and stuff in England around the, the Delta variant as well, and I think it is important that we are planning for any scenario. Chair, I, I think that's the, the caution I would put on this is obviously it arised, arrived before um, the, the sort of news over the last week where, where there have been spikes in cases uh, of new variants. Um, and I suppose all of this, no pun intended, comes with a health warning. Um, I know the, the new campus will lend itself to a lot of the mitigations, and they're hopeful that um, that will help. But I suppose this is all on the basis of the uh, regulations going in the right direction, the story in terms of, of cases and so on going in the right direction. So there, there is that caveat. Okay, so we can bring this back for more discussion. Moving on then to page 197, there is correspondence from the Competitions and Markets Authority regarding work to establish the Office of the Internal Market re required by the new Internal Market Act. The CMA is consulting on draft guidance on the UK's internal market functions, which is attached to the, the briefing paper, um, and the deadline for that is the 23rd of July. So that's also for members to note at this point. And then 7.6 at page 231, there is a Hansard of the 19th of May's pre-introductory briefing on the parental bereavement leave and pay bill. That bill was obviously introduced by the Minister yesterday, so that's for members to note. And then at page 236, there's the Hansard of the 19th of May's briefing on EU exit, and if members are content, we will also share that with the EU Affairs Manager and the TEO and ERA committees. Thank you, Chair. And then at page 78 of table papers, there's a written briefing from the department on June monitoring, and we have a briefing scheduled on that for the 16th. Yeah, Chair. So, Peter, do you just want to quickly run Very quickly, all I would that? say is tables are the best bit. Um, I would draw members to the easements that the department is declaring, that some of which will be allowed to be managed, there's some 20 million, will be allowed to be managed um, in-house according to new rules that the Department for Finance has issued that is more flexible. But the, it's what I uh, highlighted before, the, the department is still, and, and ALBs are still carrying this huge number of vacancies, and that is going to impact on all of these policies and strategies actually being implemented with proper detailed action plans. So again, um, there are the two debates next week. There's the supply debate and there's the budget number two. Um, so those are those are key issues that will be flagged up when we have the briefing on the 16th. Um, but obviously those debates are next week. So what I would suggest to members is that paper is a good reference point. Um, for the, the debates next week and really highlights the position the department's in. Um, members will also recall uh, over the last number of months that the department has uh, indicated how much of its big spend this financial year will be through in-year monitoring. Some of that has been secured. The, the 140 plus million for the voucher scheme has been secured. But there's going to be huge spending around um, scale strategy that hasn't necessarily been secured and funding for some of the um, skills programmes will only be year on year because we're still dealing with single year budgets, which again impacts massively on 
roll out of policies and programmes when you can't do a multi-year budget. So those are maybe issues just to flag up to members. Yeah, and Peter, there are two reduced requirements for FTC. Um, can we get a wee bit more detail on those and, and maybe if we could get that in advance of the budget debate? I don't know we, if that we, will be. We have, I think we have requests in for one of them. We put a request in for the second one. And just on that point, uh, obviously FTC is something that's raised, you know, consistently in budget debates and, you know, our utilisation of it. So if the department is um, having these reduced requirements, how is that impacting on the executive's overall FTC budget? And is the department trying to identify other projects that FTC could be used on if these ones can't go ahead? Perfect, sure. We, we follow up on that. Does anybody else have any comments or anything they want to make around the budget? Okay, so moving on then to, oh, we had to seek agreement to share their papers with the Finance Committee, yes, so sorry, members Chair, are yes. agreed. Then 84 of your table papers, there's a response from the Department to the Committee's query regarding whether further education courses are currently taking place for post-primary school ch children who are taking FE courses as part of their studies. The Department states that school pupils studying at further education colleges under the entitlement framework could return to on-site learning from the week commencing the 19th of April. So pupils who are undertaking courses in occupational areas which remain under restrictions such as hospitality cannot resume some practical activities until the date agreed by the executive to remove the occupational operating under restrictions for those areas. So obviously um, that has now happened. So for those courses with no practical element, online learning will remain in place until the executive agrees that further education can progress to the appropriate step in the pathway out of restrictions. College principals have been informed of these arrangements and working with learners and school partners to implement those. So that's to note. Then at page 85 of table papers, there is a copy of the trade and investment element of the 10X economic plan. This is obviously part of a suite of papers which the Minister intends to publish under the 10X plan and um, which was alluded to in the briefing from the officials on Brexit. Um, the committee obviously will want to give this a wee bit more detail. Peter, do you want to give us a quick... Chair, I'm really conscious of time, so, so what I'm going to suggest is we bring it back but we also create our own schematic about what these 10Xs actually mean. So we've had two now, there are more to come. So I think it would be useful to start a, a tracker, if you like, on what they're actually doing and how this works with the ERAP and, and the programme for government and so on. So we will devise a suitable schematic for that. Um, yeah. Will we quickly back. do the SR? Because yes, please. It's the one that's sure, already yeah. been debated, isn't it? It is, yes. Yeah. So SR 2021-139, the Renewables Obligation Order, Northern Ireland 2021. There's a clerk's memo at page 248. The SR itself is at page 249. The SR will bring the Norse legislation in line with British legislation, which was brought forward by BES and is being made in Westminster. The purpose of the SR is to allow participants to use their 2019 operational data instead of the disrupted 2020 data to enable them to qualify for the CHPQA certification in 2021. This applies to those who may have been affected by the adverse impact of COVID-19 and its associated restrictions on consumer demand and consequently on heat and power ratios, which may not enable them to reach the benchmark required by the standard. So we considered the SL1 at our meeting on the 23rd of March and members were content 
the uh, statutory rule is subject to draft affirmative resolution procedure. It came into operation on the 1st of June and that the examiner of statutory rules has not yet reported on the rule, so members will be agreeing to the legislation subject to the examiner of statutory rules report. So members are content, we'll put the question. Thank you. And that's that the Committee for the Economy has considered the SR 2021-139, the Renewables Obligation Amendment Order NI 2021, and recommends that it be affirmed by the Assembly subject to the Examiner of Statutory Rules report. Thank you, Chair. Okay, members, so... Sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry, I declare an interest, Chair, right. as the owner of a wind turbine. And so we're moving on then just to item... Peter, do we want to... Let's, let's see, Chair. We, we usually have about 10 minutes grace. So do we want to do... Let's try and see if we can get through some... Um, we've got correspondence. We've also got... AOB. AOB. If we go for the AOB first. Okay. So, Mike, you had indicated AOB. Y yeah, Chair. And it's really just a point of information. And, uh, excuse my ignorance. But when we have a, a disastrous announcement like yesterday's from Thompson Aero seating... Do, do we engage with the company, with the employees, reach out through the unions? Do we ask the department what they're doing to, to support uh, the company and the employees? And also, I mean, in this case, what I'm hearing is that the order book is actually very good for 2022-23. So we've got this complicated situation where they're shedding 180 highly skilled workers, potentially wanting 180 highly skilled workers in 12 months' time. So I don't, I don't have any answers. I'm just asking the question. Yeah. Chair, I, I strongly suspect um, Thompson is an Invest client. So, Chair, what, what I would um, advise the committee is to write to Invest to see what exactly they're doing in terms of supporting the company and probably write to the minister as well. What, what usually happens is we go through the minister and the uh, Invest and I who, who um, manage clients um, to ask them what they're doing. Invest may well have put money in. We find out what's going on there and, and, and how they're assisting the company, if they can assist the company. Um, also, the department, in terms of what the broader executive will be doing to support workers. Um, the difficulty here is private sector, and this company, um, if I'm right, was is, has been majority owned by a bigger Chinese company since 2016. And there are, um, this kind of issue is, I, I suppose, decisions being made out with the local economy, out with the situation here. But again, that's something we can find out through Invest. Um, in terms of direct engagement, the committee has generally not done that. It's been done through the Department of Invest. Um, Chair, just to be clear, Peter, I think I'm more concerned about the employees and the yes, families yes. Than, than the company. And, and that there should be support available. That the, the, um, there, when redundancies are at that level, there's a support system that springs in to, to, um, to play with economy, communities. Um, and I think other, there's other departments as well, but it's, it's, it's kind of a... Um, if you like, it's a programmed executive response right. Good. Okay. Um, that will spring into play here for those, those 180 uh, workers that are facing redundancy. It, there were also, um, Chair, it might just be worth raising as well, that there seems to be a lack of clarity on 
where this figure is ultimately going, because there have been previous announcements from Thompson um, that they, they were going to shed more jobs, and then another announcement about more, and then this set of redundancies comes. So, again, potentially through invest, we, we might actually get a clearer picture of what yeah, this sure. means. Is this yeah. is this now, part of the five hundred, uh, or is this or separate is from the five hundred? Separate yeah. to that, um, because there, there's been a lot of information out there about this. Okay, John, do you want to go ahead? Yeah, I would support uh, the proposal to write to invest in the department just to see what support there has been put in place to secure uh, the company in, in terms of future contracts, as, as Mike has said. Uh, unfortunately, support from departments comes in the frame or, of how to claim benefits, also direction towards other jobs, of course, as well, and perhaps reskilling and retraining. Um, so it has its good sides, but also obviously people been being directly claimed benefits, there is a huge loss in their income as a result. But it would be interesting to know exactly the, the figure in terms of job losses a bit back because there has been a number of announcements since the collapse or since the collapse of the global economy. Uh, and it does it include agency workers because there's quite a significant number of agency workers have lost their jobs here over this last number of months as well. But Everything should be done to secure the future of that company in Portadown and Bambridge because the global economy will come back again. People will start flying again. And that the market that has been secured by Thompson's is, is a very good market. And also, as we say, it's a good, pays good wages uh, and supports local families in the local economy. So if we, everything should possible should be done to secure the future of that plant. And members will remember that we have already raised the issue of sector-specific extensions to the furlough scheme, and I think this is one of those um, particular sectors where it's going to be really important that there is that slightly longer-term um, support available because it is going to take slightly longer for them to come back. Gary is wanting to come in. Yeah, thanks, Chair. Just to touch on your final point, obviously I support the previous uh, comments, but I think that this does, this does highlight the need for um, you know, sector-specific uh, support going forward, given the fact that, you know, there's many sectors that won't recover at the same pace. Uh, the order books might look good for next year, but they need uh, support to tide them over uh, until that happens. So, so I'm uh, happy to support uh, the need to, to write to uh, invest. And I think that we need to urge the department as well to, to continue the conversations with the, the, the UK government as a whole, because I think that a lot of the issues that are facing the sector here in Northern Ireland apply equally to uh, the rest of the United Kingdom as well. So I would just like to make that point, but to have to support the other proposals as well. Yeah, and I think that that's an important point. Obviously, we don't have the, the resources to be able to support the, the aviation sector here, specifically through the executive. So that is something that needs um, that support coming from the British government. Peter, you wanted to come Chair, in? Chair, yeah, we, we have correspondence um, ongoing around extension of furlough, particularly for um, specific sectors where that bounce back is not going to happen straight away. We also have written in similar terms to the um, department and executive more broadly. I've had confirmation that um, Thompson is indeed a, an invest company and that Invest is working with the um, company to, to see what can be done in terms of securing jobs, uh, mitigating redundancies, um, protecting jobs going forward, um, potentially a level of, um, we've seen this with some companies, Chair, is, is looking at alternative markets or alternative use of production lines. 
um, and the Department and Department for Communities will, as members have already indicated, um, provide assistance to those who have been made redundant. Um, but I think the key thing is trying to stem that flow. And as Invest says, look at, you know, it is a very specific market and they have, you know, our world leaders in this. They, they provide a huge number of airlines and, and manufacturers. Um, so it's, it's finding a way of keeping everything going uh, until that market picks up again. Unfortunately, the sector uh, isn't expected to reach pre-COVID levels until 2024-25. So there are clearly issues there about addressing um, the, the need in the interim to secure jobs. So we, if members are content, sure, we'll capture that in the letters that go out. Yep. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. So we'll move, just move on to... Um, I think we, we probably will need to, because I know guys will be outside uh, to come in and cleanse before the next meeting. So we'll go to item number 11, which is the date, time and place of our next meeting, which is next Wednesday, the 9th of June, in room 30 at 10 a.m. And Chair, we'll uh, issue correspondence uh, for agreement via email um, later on, OK? So if members are content with that, that's how we approach it. OK, thank you. Thanks very much. 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29.